0: It is great to see you this morning. I'm Father Morgan Reed. I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Um, Welcome again to this second Sunday of Lent. I'm really glad that you're here to go on the journey uh, with Jesus together to Jerusalem over these 40 days. As we look together at today's uh, gospel passage in the gospel of St. Mark, let me pray for us. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you heard this collect today. Um, It strikes me every year. It's a really hard collect. So if you're not familiar with what a collect is, this is the prayer that we pray at the beginning of each week. And um, the collect becomes... A prayer that we pray in the morning and in the evening every day during the week. So you will pray this up to what is that? Twelve times over the next six days. Uh, and 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 this collect is really hard for me to pray authentically. Uh, there's no power in ourselves to help ourselves. And and the reason why it's hard for me to pray is because I really like to fix things. Like I'm a doer and. And I'm really good at strategizing, figuring out a plan, and then executing on it. And if things don't go right, I'm going to make sure they do. All right? It's just in my nature. And, and so I often live in the illusion that I actually do have power in myself to help myself. I don't know if others of you are like me in this. And, and I've been following Jesus now for about 25 years. And over and over again, I'm brought to places where I'm reminded that... Um, This just is not the case, that I really don't have power in myself to help myself. And and there are numerous examples I could share with you. And as we do formation groups together, I'm sure I will have time to share those with you. But I was thinking of one specific example that Ashley and I went through together. Uh, We moved to Northern Virginia back in 2012. So we've been here, you know, roughly 12 years We used to live in a small one-bedroom apartment along Columbia Pike in Arlington. I worked for Starbucks in Pentagon City and I would take the bus every day to go make coffee for customers and manage a coffee shop. Uh, And I was beginning my coursework for an MA to PhD program that was up uh, in Catholic University in the Northeast. Uh, And Ashley, fortunately, thanks be to God, had found a job uh, that she was able to transfer to from her job where we, we moved from Dallas. And so she was working in D.C., able to transfer similar positions in the same same organization. And but about a year of being in Arlington, I don't know if, if you've had the experience of difficulty with just living in Northern Virginia. Uh, it was about a year in, and our it, it was really hard. It got really hard really fast. Uh, we were like twenty-eight, twenty-nine at that point. We'd been married for about six years, and. This was our third major move where we had to restart life again. Uh, so we'd been six months in one place, two years, two years, and now we were restarting again. And, and we hit a low point together uh, in 2013 when we were living in that little apartment along Columbia Pike. And it was so painful, and I felt so much guilt. Um, I felt like I had moved us here from Dallas and, uh, and because I was the reason and my schooling was the reason, uh, I, I was to blame for where we were at. Ashley, her job ended that year in 2023. and. Um, you know, nothing against coffee shops, but like that doesn't cut it as far as salary when you're trying to uh, rent an apartment, uh, even if it's just 1500 a month, like that's not going to make it. And so we were dependent on that income. And so we hit this really low point in our marriage together where we were just kind of like wondering where God was. And I was frustrated. There were lots of tears. I don't cry a ton, but I cried a ton back then. And And on top of that, I was in this expensive school. I didn't have funding for it, so we were draining savings. Uh, I had to pull back on school so that we could actually afford to live. We needed a new car because when we drove our car out to here, the engine block had cracked. And I remember going to Costco and having to buy Costco Uh, Amounts of motor oil to keep in the back of the car, and I was filling it daily. Uh, I was not kind to the earth. Um, But you know, that car was just a mess. We needed a new car, we had, uh, and we did get a new car. We traded that one in for very little money and used that little money for a down payment. Um, So now we had a car payment, a school payment, and rent, and had to eat. And I didn't make enough money for that on my coffee shop salary, and it just brought us to the end of ourselves. And I ran into a situation then that I couldn't fix. You know, I've got a theology degree. Like, What can I do? You know? And, and I was scared that God wouldn't provide for us, that we would be homeless, that I have no employable skills. Uh, and I remember being angry at God that I'm not even 30 yet. Right. And, and, I was a seminary dropout with a Bible college degree, and the only thing I could do in life was to manage a coffee shop, which would have been great if the, you know if this God had called me to that, but this is all I could do right now. And I, I did then have to significantly pull back from school. I pretty much dropped out of all my classes. Um, and eventually, God in his kindness did provide some work. It wasn't ideal, but it got us through. And things... Uh, took way longer than we had expected together. and they turned out far differently than we had expected uh, together. This was not the life that we had planned. but But I look at at that moment uh, as one of many moments of just training uh, in vulnerability and trust, vulnerability with God, vulnerability with my wife. Uh, I gave God my fears, I gave Ashley my fears. They were honored. They were heard. And eventually, those, that, that space, that time period, as I think about the story of our lives at that point, that became a, a place where I can now testify of God's kindness. And as I look back at my story, and, and as you look back at your story, you can kind of look at those places over and over again where, where God spoke his kindness and care uh, into those places of wounding and vulnerability and 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 he's created space for you to offer grace to, for others. Now, if I you know am honest with you, there are still places in my life where I am trying to be vulnerable with God and I'm longing for his grace. But that's OK, because I'm sure if I were to sit down with each one of you and have coffee, I'm sure that is you as well. I'm not sure that ever goes away. Um, but I am trying to be vulnerable with God and my wife about These unmet longings, those places of grief, um, where there are good things that I wish we had that we just don't right now. And I'm realizing over and over again that those things are out of my control. I can't do anything about it. And, And I hate that a little bit less than I did before. So that's movement, right? Uh, there are these places that we just can't control. And hopefully forward movement just means that you hate it a little bit less than you did yesterday. And for a culture that we live in that is so strategic and capable and accomplished, man, we need this prayer, this call at, to remind us that we know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. And so as we encounter those different places of brokenness that we're stepping into There are going to be voices, kind of like we encountered in the gospel today, there are going to be voices of avoidance that are trying to compel us not to press into those places of pain. But the thing is, following Christ, discipleship, is this invitation for the wounded to find hope as we're following Christ into his death in the hope that we also experience the hope of his resurrection. Which means that discipleship is a hard road. We can't avoid that. Um, But it is also a very good road. And in the hard road, we discover the presence of God and the grace of God. It reminds me a bit of a quote by Henry Nowen uh, from his book, The Wounded Healer, which he says, when we become aware that we do not have to escape our pains, but that we can mobilize them into a common search for life, those very pains are transformed from expressions of despair into signs of hope. So to undergo that transformation by God's help and his grace is to discover the grace of God and to discover the redemption of Jesus Christ. There was in our gospel narrative that we read today in Mark chapter 8, we're encountering now a huge shift in the, the narrative of the gospel. So much of the story up to this point was about The fact that Jesus is the Messiah, this is what the gospel is trying to tell us. And now there's a shift in the narrative to how is Jesus going to become that Messiah? What's the process look like? How's that going to take shape? And so Jesus asks his disciples who people say he is. We didn't read that part in our narrative this morning, it happened just before this. And Peter speaks as this spokesman for the disciples, and he says to Jesus, You are the Messiah. And Jesus, at that point, affirms sin. Yes, that's true. And then there's this switch. Jesus starts talking about, um, he begins to teach the disciples that he is going to be rejected by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he's going to be killed. And he's going to rise again. He doesn't also mention that he's going to be rejected by all of them here too. But that will come. This is a surprise to them, how Jesus is going to become the Messiah Is shocking and is not at all what they expected. But in the background of Jesus becoming the Messiah this way is Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. This is sort of in the backdrop of Jesus' vision for what the Messiah is going to become. Everyone wanted the Daniel 7 Messiah, the guy who's going to ride in on the clouds, who's going to establish his glory, the glory of God's kingdom over all the earth. But the surprise here is that suffering and death is going to be part of the process of enthronement. And that's why Peter takes him aside. And Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. It's a very strong word, rebuke. Not just ask curious questions to wonder with Jesus. No, straight up rebuke Jesus. It's the kind of rebuke that you might give to somebody if they're getting a little overzealous. Imagine a scenario where you're kind of like, let's just calm down a little bit. Um, So Jesus is receiving this kind of rebuke from Peter. And I can imagine all the disciples are kind of looking at each other as Jesus was teaching. And and there's this awkward tension. Like everyone's kind of thinking, that's not how this works, Jesus. Slow down. And Peter becomes their spokesman. And so that's why um, Jesus where we get to Jesus is not just rebuking Peter in strong terms. He's rebuking all the disciples in these strong terms. Jesus hasn't been that blatant before about his death and resurrection. He has talked about it, but now it's just obvious. And so he's sensing, uh, Peter is sensing the mood of the disciples, and he has to go and pull Jesus aside uh, to ask him to calm down a little bit. And so Jesus, the same word occurs with Peter rebuking and Jesus rebuking. Jesus' rebuke is a match to Peter's rebuke. Peter tries to rebuke Jesus in private. But Jesus uh, turns towards Peter, and really towards all the disciples, if you heard that reading. He turns towards all the disciples, uh, and since Peter is the spokesman for them, this is addressed to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Words nobody wants to hear from Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. And he talks about you don't know the plans or the things of God. It's really strong. And in fact, you know, in Judaism, they were familiar with Satan or the accuser, Beelzebub. But it's never really been attributed to a human person before. This is kind of a unique instance. And the reason why Peter's correction is uh, attributed to Satan and it's so strong is because what's happening right now is the, the collective will of the disciples is being set over and against the, the kingdom of God, like the plan of God, the will of God. It's this clashing of wills for how the kingdom is going to come about. And it's a temptation that you and I all face. All of us, we face this temptation to think that we know how God is going to bring about his plans better than he does. I mean, it's easy to follow Jesus when Jesus, when his commands are flowing with the tide of cultural ideas. When there's no opposition, it can be really hard to follow Jesus for several reasons. One is that because we're afraid that if we begin to work on something uh, with him, then we might discover that actually our brokenness runs far deeper than we expected it to go. And, and we're afraid that sort of that phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, we kind of coast through life because we're afraid that if we actually address this thing, that our brokenness is going to run far deeper than we expected and we won't be able to function. That We are beyond repair. That might be a fear in following Jesus. It can be difficult to follow Jesus because the goodness of God doesn't show up. Uh, In what I'm experiencing right now. And sometimes wrestling in the wilderness. Wrestling with that juxtaposition. That I know God's good. But it's not. I'm not experiencing that. Wrestling with that is more exhausting. Than just numbing the pain with distraction. So these temptations pull us away. From the road to discipleship. These are the voices that say. I know the plan of God. And it is not going to the cross. These are the temptations, the voices of avoidance that we should also kind of in our hearts say, get behind me, Satan, you don't know the things of God. One commentator summarized the next section of the Gospel of Mark really well. He says, the road to Jerusalem will become the classroom in which the disciples begin to learn the radical new ideology of the kingdom of God. This is where they're going. They're heading on the road to Jerusalem. So the road to Jerusalem will be the classroom in which the disciples begin to learn the radical new ideology of the kingdom of God. Jesus says to his disciples and to the crowds, if anybody wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And I'm I'm reminded of this post that I saw back on Ash Wednesday, which was also Valentine's Day this year, somebody had asked, I think it was a Catholic priest, they had asked the Catholic priest, you know, what are you going to be doing for this Valentine's Day? And it was a meme or a Twitter comment, I'm not sure, but a tweet, well formerly known as Twitter, but it doesn't matter. Um, But this priest said, well, I I plan to rub ashes on people's forehead and uh, tell them that they're going to die. This is Valentine's Day plans. How about you? Um, and, And it's, it's, um, Dark humor, It's funny because it's true. Um, Ash Wednesday is a very powerful service, and it's sort of awkward to have it on Valentine's Day, isn't it? Um, but the reality is, if, if discipleship um, has a trajectory, uh, which it does, if we're moving towards Christ, then death, from like as we learned from Ash Wednesday, death becomes this thing that, that calibrates us. It it calibrates us towards the trajectory of discipleship in life. And I think that's important for two reasons. First, it makes us prioritize the right things in life. And second, it keeps us from going to battle over the wrong things. Jesus taught uh, the disciples what to prioritize as they were on the way to Jerusalem. This is part of their schooling and education. Jesus serves the least influential. He heals beggars. He heals children. He takes children into his arms and he teaches them. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He honors a poor widow's small offering. He's unjustly arrested. And then while that's happening, he heals the ear of one of the soldiers who's arresting him as one of his followers cut it off. He goes through this sham trial by himself, because all of his friends have now abandoned him. And then he's crucified in between two common criminals. And that's our king. And that was all done willingly. And at any point, he could have stopped the process. And it wasn't, it wasn't because he loved suffering. It was because he had a clear vision of the nature of the kingdom of God. And... And that it was his resurrection that would bring about his enthronement as king. And his resurrection is what is going to bring us into the new life of God. Into living union with our Lord. And so Jesus also said no to many things as he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. He said no to joining influential religious factions and parties. He said no to, uh, as he, um, to certain things as he challenged rulers and authorities trying to persuade them of their own injustice. We'll talk about that next week when he flips over tables. He challenged the wealthy with sacrificial generosity. He refused to be threatened when other people were healing in his name outside of his immediate disciples. He refused to get caught up in smokescreen kind of arguments uh, about whether or not to pay taxes or if there's going to be marriage in the resurrection. And ultimately... He refuses to avoid the suffering that would bring him to his death so that he might come to his resurrection and so that he would come to the place of redeeming us. And so I'm struck as I read about our Lord, um, I'm struck by the sense of security that Jesus has. There is he is a very secure person in who he is and what God is calling him to do and to become. And, and when others use his name to cast out demons, um, you know, his followers were threatened by this idea. Like, are you taking people away from us? But Jesus is not threatened by this idea that someone might appear as powerful or more than his own disciples. It's in his name. And he could have answered hard questions in order to look more favorable with people, uh, different groups, kind of like a politician would. But he doesn't do any of that. He could have flattered the wealthy in order to fund his ministry to have more influence, but he doesn't do that. The kingdom of heaven, it was greater than comfort. It was greater than influence because the kingdom of heaven strikes at what we need most, which is redemption from all the ways that we are broken and all the ways that this world is broken. The kingdom of God answers what we need most, which is redemption from the brokenness of the world, from the brokenness of ourselves in body and soul and restored fellowship with one another and restored uh, union with the God who loves us. And that's the shape of discipleship that these disciples are learning from Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. We're called to this long road of dependence, each one of us. A long road of dependence that's lined with small acts of faithfulness to Jesus along the way. Our disposition is such that death is before us as this great um, calibrator. It's sort of a compass for the next good thing in the kingdom of God and in service to others. Which includes um, where to be vulnerable next with our Lord. Suffering doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. um, But... Suffering is an invitation to press into what dependence and faithfulness might look like in those moments in order to encounter more deeply the redemption of God and his grace. And so the the son of man, as we discover in Daniel 7, the son of man who is going to ride in on the clouds of glory is also the one who is going to suffer for the redemption of God's people. And we shouldn't long for suffering, so don't hear me say that. Uh, None of us should sit there and go, when am I, Lord, if I would just suffer more. You know, that's that's not the point. I I don't wish that on anyone, nor should we long for suffering. But we also shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes, because it is the reality of discipleship. Nor should we feel shame when it does. It just is there. It was there for our Lord. It's going to be there for those who follow him. Our Lord's suffering became the means for his glory. And it's the place from which redemption comes. And it's true for us as well, as you and I follow Christ, that those places become places of redemption. The word vulnerability in English, I've used it a couple times today. Uh, It's related to the Latin word for wounding. Uh, So uh, vulnerability, vulnus, wound, wounding. And so not that... I want to make a whole theology out of this, but I can sort of imagine uh, in in my mind and I I can't help but think that as we are growing in our ability to hand over our wounds, the places of wounding to our savior, that he looks at us and and he says, you know, I understand and, and I bless those wounds with redemptive power here are my wounds, right? And he shows us, and, and he says, these began the process of your redemption. Your scars are going to remind you that you are healed, but that that wound is going to become part of your story. And the thing is, it's going to be a redeemed part of your story. And I, and I think of that often when I think about us coming to the Eucharist together. That we're experiencing the redeemed part of our wounding. Because we, in our brokenness and in God's grace, we are taken, we are blessed, uh, we, we've been broken. And, and now we are given by God's power for the life of the world. And we experience that each week in the Eucharist, in our liturgy. And so as we close together and we think about the Eucharist, about wounding, about God's grace, his redemption, his power to heal, restore and bring his glory through the places of our dependence on him. Let me pray one last time the the collect for today over us. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our body and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.